The information provided on this podcast is intended to be educational and informational only and is not considered to be formal legal advice. The listener should not take or refrain from taking action based on its content. Any listener in need of legal opinion upon which to rely in decision-making should consider formally engaging an attorney to review relevant facts in detail and examine the pertinent law as it applies to those facts. Welcome to Real Estate Milestones, where we explore fascinating topics in commercial real estate with knowledgeable industry experts. I'm your host, Ben Malik, and I'm a young real estate professional who is passionate about adding value to people's lives through the incredible power of real estate. My goal is to help you discover what the heck is going on in the industry and how you can get involved. This is Real Estate Milestones, where your future in real estate lies just around the corner. Hello, everybody. This is Ben coming to you from New Orleans, and we got Bo Beery. Where are you coming from? Yo, I'm based in Gainesville, Florida. Awesome. So Bo is a expert in the multifamily brokerage space. He's been in CRE brokerage for 20 years and owned a Coldwell Banker franchise where he was the number one multifamily producer by, by sales and the top three in the world. We got some, some pretty good experience from that end. He's also the author of Multifamily Investors Who Dominate, which is part of the way I found Bo originally because I was like, <laughs> I was trying to figure out how to dominate, obviously, in multifamily. <laughs> so I was like, oh, yeah. wow, Bo. That is exactly what I'm looking for. Let me <laughs> read that. Go. It was great. It had a bunch of great information. So not ashamed to plug that at all. And also I heard Bo first on Anthony Scandariato's podcast, which you might've heard a theme on this show. And a lot, a lot of my inspiration for podcasting came from Anthony, but um, you can check that episode out as well. But Bo, great to have you. Could you give a little bit more context to your background and kind of how you got yeah. started in the, in the space? Yeah, sure. You bet. I did my AA degree at Daytona Beach Community College. Then I transferred over to the University of Florida and did my undergrad degree in marketing. And when I graduated, I was actually looking to be a personal trainer. Like that was that was what I did all through college. Great. Loved it. Was big into training. I had interviewed for a job at the RDV Sportsplex in Orlando, which is a huge facility. It had just been built. It was absolutely gorgeous. It was my dream job. And I only applied one place and that was it. And I didn't get the job <laughs> and I was bummed out. And I'm like, crap, I was walking into the gym to go do a workout. I was walking upstairs and a buddy of mine was at the top of the stairs in the gym. And I told him I didn't get my job. He says, well, shoot. He said, you know, we're, we're building an apartment complex right now here in Gainesville, 444 units. And uh, we need help, you know, leasing up the units and managing them. I'm like, well, shoot. Yeah. I mean, I need a job. So that sounds good. Right. So I started there at $35,000 a year. That was uh, 1999. And the, the developer was Tremel Crow Residential, which was one of the top developers in the country. And I didn't know at the time, I didn't know who they were, but, uh, but they were pretty damn good at what they did. And they paid for education. Like I was like, oh, I'll just go get my real estate license. So I got my real estate license and they paid for it and books here and there and they, they pay for it. And while I was getting my real estate license, everyone was talking in the real estate course about the master's degree in real estate program at the University of Florida, which at the time was like number five in the country or something like that. Right now, it just became number one in the country. And so I was like, shoot, well, let me see what the qualifications are. We had to have a 500 GMAT. You had to have some sort of GPA. I don't remember what it was. You had to have letters of recommendations from employers because a lot of folks had been working and then you would come back and do this degree. Like I wanted you to have work experience. So I had everything, but I couldn't get this damn GMAT. 
I mean, I'm just not a good test taker. And over the course of a year, I took it three times before I finally passed it. And meanwhile, I was calling the admissions person every day trying to get in there. And I finally wore them down and I got into the program. That was one of my bigger milestones was getting accepted into that master's degree program at UF. I graduated from that and I was with Trummel Crow for three years, went back, did the master's degree, graduated in 2002. And I had actually married my wife during the master's degree program. And she's one of those folks that just wasn't going to leave her hometown. She was born and raised in Gainesville, been here forever, has parents here, uncles, aunts, brothers, all that stuff, grandparents. And so I interviewed all over the place with a bunch of folks in Gainesville and Ocala. And I came across a, a group called AMJ, which was a phenomenal developer and investor based in Gainesville. They covered a good bit of the Southeast. They currently own assets all over the country, but they had a large portfolio of office, retail, industrial, and multifamily. And I brokered and managed those assets for almost 10 years and got really good at the brokerage game, got good at working for one guy, keeping a, a sizable portfolio full. And then I started thinking to myself, well, shoot, if I'm good at this, this for one guy, if I'm this good for one guy, what if I did this for five guys? What if I did this for 10 guys? What if I did this for 20 guys? And meanwhile, I'm, I'm becoming friends with a buddy of mine who owned the Colwell Banker and the Colwell Banker franchises for over a hundred years. Their family had owned the, these brokerages and he needed someone to partner up with and really build this company because this was at this point, this was like 2000. So it was 2009, 2010. We're still in the pits of hell. And so I acquired the company with him and my father-in-law. And, and then I went into multifamily brokerage and just took off from there and just concentrated on just doing the multifamily assets. And I ended up last year, actually, I sold back my franchises back to the partners and uh, started my own little boutique, Bo Beery Multifamily Advisors in January. And it's just me and a couple of staff members and, and uh, we're gold, man. Couldn't be happier. Awesome. That's super helpful. I appreciate you sharing all that context. It's a great story. Before we get into a little bit more of what you do, I was wondering if you could tell us a little bit about your first deal or you know something that you learned from one of your first milestones where you actually uh, fully realized like real estate is the key. Like this is what I want to do, you know? I remember it distinctly when I was working at Tremel Crow, my first job, you know, out of my undergrad. And I'm I was there during new construction. So I'm watching these apartments go up. And as buildings come available, we would work on leasing them. And my property manager that I reported to, she was really cool. Like she would show the books, the financials, the income statements. And I'm watching 800 people pay for this, or the time was about a 27, 28 million dollar asset. And I never saw the owners. And I'm thinking to myself, I'm like, dude, I'm like, these guys never come to the asset. It's being paid for by other people. The mortgage is being paid down every month. There's cash flow every single month. And I'm like, I got to learn more about this game. Like this is this is unreal that what you have to do is, is basically secure debt for, you know, anywhere between 60 and 75% of the cost. Come up with the rest of the money and you can do that with friends, family. You could, you know, if you're good at, at sort of raising money, which if you're building a nice asset is, is not hard to do these days. And then you bring on a good management team, you're collecting huge amounts of money and it's not not no work, 
But from a scaling standpoint, it's, it's tremendous. And so that was the first time when I was like, I got to go back and I want to get educated on everything about multifamily, about real estate, about how to finance them, how to do the pro formas, how these people think. I want to know the whole gamut. That's when I went with uh, AMJ because he was just a phenomenal teacher and took me under his wing and went to the next level. And that's definitely a lot of helpful information about multifamily investors who to dominate. Let's go that, down that path. What, <laughs> what makes a multifamily investor who dominates? You're referring to my books. So my book right here that I wrote, that's what it looks like. It's on Amazon. It's on Audible. It's on Kindle. I wrote that last year. And the reason I wrote it was for 20 years, I've been watching some of the most elite investors in the world grow way faster than the vast majority of other investors. There's there's a, an elite group of folks. I've counted them in my market to be one half of 1% of investors. These are people who are trading way more deals per year than everybody else. And I would take notes all along the way in my career, which I would encourage you to do, Ben, and others watching this, especially young people, to kind of like noticing how the best of the best do things and jotting down notes. And what I noticed were two big things. Number one, these guys knew the markets like the back of their hands, and they developed a reputation in the marketplace for closing and being gentlemanlike or gentlewoman-like, always showing up, always doing what they say they're going to do, never retrading on price or terms from the contract, never talking bad about the properties in front of the owners, You know, treat others how you would want to be treated. It doesn't get done in this business. Part of the reason I wrote the book. And the second reason I wrote the book is there's a kind of this unknown in the marketplace, how many of the deals are controlled by brokers. So I had done a five-year study of every closing that happened over 10 units in the markets I cover, which is the northern half of Florida. And I studied 31% of every closing. And I determined that 93% of every closing over 10 units was done by a broker. And it's not because brokers are you know anything special. It's because if you think about it logically, the person who owns a $5 million, $20 million, $80 million asset, why would they entertain some offer from a guy who they don't know off the streets that called them directly when they can hire me and I'll bring them 15 offers in three weeks? So everybody uses brokers in order to maximize their returns, especially on the price. And so if the game is controlled by brokers, then your whole game should be befriending brokers. And I'm not talking about like buying them gifts and stuff like that. I'm talking about developing meaningful relationships and long-term relationships of respect. And it's on a cadence every month or two, calling every broker in the market and developing relationships so that when they get listings, they think of you first. Because multifamily doesn't get sold on websites like houses do. Okay, houses get sold on MLS. Apartment companies sold on websites. They get sold through phone calls and emails directly to the principals. That's how these deals get done. And so you can't remember to network with every broker in your market. The way you have to do it is making a list of all the brokers, importing them into a CRM, and creating a call cadence to them on a regular basis. So Ben, you could imagine, and I teach all this in my book on how to do that stuff. You could imagine the most elite investors in the world, they're calling 50 or 60 brokers that cover the Northern half of Florida every 30 to 60 days. And they're having conversations about business, but they're also having conversations about wives and husbands and kids and hobbies and what'd you do on the weekend. And, and it's, kind of, it's kind of mixing in business and personal, but it's, it's every month or two 
month after month, year after year. And so you can see how over the course of 5, 10, 15 years, developing that kind of bond with 50 or 60 brokers, how that kind of person who is extremely aware that actually does this gets a first look at every listing from every broker. Often, almost always, the difference between an elite investor and everybody else is the number of deals they see. It's not how smart they are. It's not how much money they've got. It's not how good they are at getting debt. No one's so much better than anybody else that they're elite in any one of those categories. Where they're elite is how many deals they see. What happens is, is almost all investors, if I showed them a list of 100 closings of deals that they would normally have gone after, most of them have only seen a small fraction. Most hear about the deals after they've already closed. The elite investors look at that list and can tell you that they've saw almost every single one of them. It was emailed to them. It was got, They got a phone call about it. They were physically visited by a broker, whatever it was. They hear about all these deals because they have a, a relationship and they have tremendous reputation for always closing, responding quickly, going to contract, paying the right price, treating the sellers correctly, not redlining contract ad nauseum, never retrading. I mean, it's like it's easy stuff but it's it's hard to do in theory consistently over time and that's how you become a multifamily investor who dominate great well that's a that's a lot of helpful information sounds like maybe it's the the blueprint to success in this field but a theme that you everyone's probably picking up on is a lot of what you're saying is you're talking about human psychology more than anything we're like we're trying to it's a it's a relationship business where you're trying to develop real connections with real people. And I know that, I mean, these things about not offending or pissing people off, like that's, that seems pretty obvious, but I mean, definitely got to think about it in, in that context. Yeah. That's a, a pretty powerful theme that uh, I, I could, <laughs> I've heard you talk about before. And, and well, let me um, tell you, I'll give you another stat. And this is super important. I do a lot of polling on LinkedIn. I love LinkedIn polling, especially if you're connected to 12 or 15,000 people, you can get a really good data set. And so I poll every week and then I save the results to my website. So if you go to bobiri.com, click on resources at the top, you'll see my polls. One of the polls I did recently, I asked investors, what's the number one trait you look for in a broker? And this goes for brokers, appraisers, investors, you know, widget sellers, whatever it is. What's the number one trait you look for in a broker? And, I, and LinkedIn allows you to have four choices. I put number of years experience, you know, how long you've been in the business. I put sales volume, right? So actual, how much volume are you doing? How many deals are you selling? The size of your company. C.B. Richard Ellis is the largest brokerage in the world. Marcus Amilichap, Collier's, NAI, Cushman and Wakefield, right? That, you know, how, how big is your company? And I couldn't even think of a fourth choice. I'm just like, ah, you know, let me throw in there likability and, and the ability to reach a broker. Like I made, I, I literally said likability, reachability, right? I didn't think anybody would check on it. It was by light years, the number one choice. 51% of voters, and I had several hundred votes, chose likability and reachability as the number one choice. That was 51%. Number two, I think it was like 30% was sales volume. And it's because if someone's even thinking of hiring you for something, they already know you're good at it. Otherwise, they would have even never even heard of you before. They know you sell.
What they want is someone they like and that they can get a hold of when they need them. A transaction is a 90-day process. It's a 90-day marriage. Then if you and I are doing a deal, we're going to be talking several times a day, almost every single day. And it's tough to do that when I don't like you. Do you know what the size of the company vote was? Like how big the company is you're with? Guess how many people said that was number one? I uh, know. It sounds like it might have been closer to less than 10%. Yeah, one. One person. One percent. People want to work with, the, it's, it's the agent. It's the, it's the human being they're working with directly that they want to like. So when you follow me on social media, I concentrate a lot, a lot on not just stats and data and adding value, but being likable. Like I, I, like to, I like to do things differently and make people laugh. And I want people to know that when they do a transaction with me, we're not going to just be doing a transaction. Like we're going to become friends. You know, we're going to we'll eventually do things on the weekend. We may go fishing. We may go to dinner. We're going to have lunch. Like when you're in town, I want you to feel like I want to call Bo up because he's fun to hang out with. It's what people want. It's why I've even lost major listings to a single family residential agent who has never sold the apartment complex in his or her life. I've lost listings to them because they went to church with the seller or they were their neighbor or they were good friends from, from college. It's a big deal. I was trying to answer your question before you even posed the options to kind of see if I could crack it. And I went straight to like credibility and like a bit like ability to develop a connection, you know, like, and so like, I guess that's the same theme as like, like ability. It really and, is. It's a big yeah, deal. Like, yeah. Like you said, like the marriage, it's, you know, you're working with this person a lot. You got to know that they're, you're on the same team for sure. That's right. Yeah. That's, that's really, that's really every awesome. deal is going to have a little bit of hair on it. And you want to know that you can go to battle with someone who's reasonable and likable. Yeah, I mean, a theme that I heard you mention before is that like, who's the the real salesperson here? Where an investor kind of has to be a salesperson because you're competing against way, way more people That's than right. you are. Like you have 60 people in your market you're competing against as a seller, but as the buyer, like we're competing for 60 people against like hundreds of- Yeah, as, hundreds. A, as a broker, I'm only competing against 50 or 60 other brokers that cover the Northern half of Florida. And if you look at the 80-20 rule, 20% of us or 12 or 15 of us are actually the ones doing all the volume. And so as a salesman, yes, I have competition, but you as an investor, you're competing against tens of thousands of people from all over the world for the same few number of, of deals. And there's only between six and 8% of inventory that sells per year. So tens of thousands of you competing with each other for only six to 8% of inventory that actually closes. Yeah. You know, let's dig into that. Cause when I, when I think of Mr. Stat, it's definitely Bo. Bo is Mr. Stats. <laughs> and he like, you go on, you go on BoBeery.com, uh, you go on the website. You'll see he got, he's got stats on the entire Northern part of uh, central yeah. and Northern part of Florida. I mean, can we talk about a couple or some of the trends you're noticing in your markets, kind of some of the, the stats you like to follow and then sure. yeah, kind of provide context to the whole situation that applies across the market. I think a lot of investors are most surprised how few of inventory there actually is in any one market, right? So in the northern half of Florida, and I'm talking about, you know, Lakeland, Winter Haven, Ocala, Gainesville, Daytona, New Smyrna, Ormond, Deland, Deltona, Daytona Beach, St. Augustine, Jacksonville, all the way over to Tallahassee, Lake City, all these markets, basically everything except like Orlando and the Panhandle, I don't, I don't cover those areas. There's only 1,967 assets over 10 units. And that includes market rate, that includes student housing, that includes affordable housing, that includes senior housing, all of them. That's it. 1967. And they're owned by only 998 people in the world. Okay. It changes a little bit, 10, 10 12 people here and there. There's only 998. That's it. 
And so if six to 8% of deals close per year and there's 2000 assets, there's only about 150 to 160 closings over 10 units in all those markets I just listed per year. Now, last year, I think we had a little bit more. My, my numbers are almost done, but it's not gonna be a whole lot more because what happens is, and people are always shocked by that number. Like, how can that be? There was only a couple hundred closings in the entire Northern half of Florida, one of the top three markets in the United States for multifamily. How's that possible? Well, it's real. It's what I track. And the reason is because when we all go on LinkedIn or Facebook and we're all part of multifamily groups and everyone we associate with and know are multifamily people. And we go on LinkedIn and our feed is full of people closing on something. They're taking pictures of themselves at a due diligence walkthrough. They're at a signing table doing a closing and there's the attorney. Here's the before and after pictures of a renovation I did. And so you consume this all day, every day, and your brain doesn't understand that this is stuff that's happening all over the country. But in any one market, there's very, very few actual closings that happen. I mean, as far as a trend goes, I think new construct there's a lot of new construction coming along because we just can't keep up with the amount of units that are needed for the demand. So the last stat I, stat I read, which was about eight or 10 months ago, I think it was National Partner Association put out a report that we have to build a little over, I think it was 330,000 units per year for the next 10 years in order to keep up with demand. And the last time we built more than 300,000 units in one year was 1989. Now we might've done it last year. We haven't got the numbers yet. My point is, is we're just so far behind. So new construction is going to continue to be a trend. I do like the cottage style units that a lot of folks are doing. So these are like side-by-side townhomes, less dense, six to eight units an acre. Tenants love that stuff. The problem is you have to find land at a reasonable price, right? A lot of land when it gets sold is usually on zoning that allows a much higher for the price is higher. So a price for an apartment complex, if they were valuing it, a good site might've been $20,000 a unit. And that was based on, let's say, 16 units to the acre. The guy who wants to do cottage style only does eight units to the acre. So now that's a $40,000 a unit land price for him. So it's hard to find land for that style, but but the, the tenants love them and they're really, really cool. You can get good, good size rents on those assets as well. So I'm seeing several of those pop up in different markets. I'm also seeing a trend of typically 100 plus unit buyers now morphing their business plan a little bit to add, not replace, but add acquiring under 100 unit transactions because there's so few deals that are coming out. And since they already have larger complexes in some of these markets, it's easy from a man perspective to just to add a, a 60 unit complex or a 30 unit complex as long as it's within range. Right. Yeah, definitely. The scalability um, definitely helps a kind of establish footprint in the market originally. So yeah, that makes a lot of sense. I guess it's a very competitive market out here today. And there's a lot of people <laughs> who are worrying about cap rates and, and the fact that, you know, price, asset prices have grown so much. I know some of your markets, like it's double last year, double a couple of years ago. I just seen like, some of these yeah. stats kind of in a way doesn't really check out. Like, I mean, the economics are there. It makes sense. Like there's a lot of demand, maybe there's low supply, there's interest rates going down. There's a, there's a lot of things that make sense. But what I wanted to really know is what do you, from an investor standpoint, what do you think people should be looking for in terms of the fundamentals that really justify the prices that people are paying? I know like in Ocala, there's a new equestrian center. 
I know that will attract a lot of people coming through. Sure. Definitely indicative of pro- of population growth, which is obviously fundamental for multifamily. But I mean, like, what kind of things are you looking for in a market where you want to become an expert? Justify the the growth yeah. that you expect. If you go on my website and you go up to resources at the top, you'll see all the markets I cover. And if you click on any of the markets I cover, it'll show you a bunch of buttons. One of which is the types of things that you should be looking for in markets, like the the, the different demographics, the incomes, the rentership, the the top employers, the the crime index, stability of the employers that are there. I'm not just a proponent for primary markets. I think secondary and tertiary markets can be good. Even a tertiary market, which let's just refer to as like a third tier market, let's call it a 20 or 30,000 population city. If there's no inventory there, and just a few complexes and one comes for sale, I'd grab it because the chances are the waiting list has always been extremely long, even in down markets in a place like that. And the reason that happens in tertiary markets and a lot of secondary markets is because the rents are lower, you can't build a new complex and get a high enough rent to pay for it. So the existing assets continue to do well. They continue to stay full. And yes, you can't have large increases on the rents per year, but you can have reasonable increases along the way and it's paying for itself and it's doing very well. The only deals that do come along new construction are usually affordable housing. They're getting the assistance of government housing. And if you have a conventional asset in a market that's full of affordable, you're going to do very well. I'm definitely down with those with those kind of markets. In the secondary markets, you know, let's call it two to five hundred thousand population. You know, I'm I'm looking definitely for at least a reasonable base of employment. You know, like Gainesville has the University of Florida, Tallahassee has FSU, Volusia County, which is Daytona, New Smyrna, Ormond. They have a lot of of travel, hotels, resorts. They have the International Speedway. Ocala has the World Equestrian Center and lots of distribution centers that are are still coming along. Orlando, I don't even have to talk about. Then you've got, I mean, Jacksonville is, you know, is a 1.5 to 1.8 million population. They've got tons and tons of industries. There's very few towns in which that just has nothing to speak for it and has apartment complexes. Most of them, there's usually some sort of story to tell. Yeah, that's a really good perspective. I have not heard that perspective on tertiary markets, but I really like that because you think about it, construction costs should be pretty similar no matter where you go. So, I mean- It's a very high barrier to entry. You'll never, you can't have competition. I just sold a little 16 unit deal in a town called Chiefland, Florida, which I think has like 6,000 people. Sold it to a guy out of Winter Park, Florida, 16 units, concrete block, two bedrooms and three bedrooms. He's killing it. There's, there's nobody that will ever bring in apartments there. You just, you can't. And I think there's four other complexes. They're all affordable housing. He has the only one that's a actual formed apartment complex. It's not affordable housing that you can live in. That's a good perspective. I think definitely going to take that and uh, run with it. So I guess the key is good management. Yeah. That small town has to have a good manager. And that town did have one. Perfect. If not, <laughs> then you need to raise one, raise a good manager. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Definitely. I heard that perspective on a podcast recently, and it definitely makes sense. Like numbers can all look good on a on piece of paper on a on model, but really comes down to <laughs> the quality of management, which really makes a difference. Figuring out a business plan that makes sense on paper can actually be done and is being done and will be done. So, yes. <laughs> great. So um, before we jump to the lightning round, could you just give us your most recent milestone in real estate or if not, maybe the, the one you're reaching towards? Let's see. I, I mean, I would say the two big ones for me have been when the pandemic hit, I was watching more YouTube and I was watching a guy named Ryan Serhant, 
who is a residential agent in New York. He's all over the internet. Phenomenal marketer. And, and I just loved his style. He would tour these $20 million condos in New York and had a, an, a tremendous following. And so I imagined he walks into listing appointments and has you know tens of thousands of subscribers on YouTube that he shows his selling client. And he says to them, hey, when we sign this listing agreement, I'm going to bring in a full film crew. We're going to film this. We're going to put on YouTube. And people from all over the world who could easily buy your $20 million condo in New York are going to see your video. And I thought, well, shoot, I can do that. You know, and so I started a YouTube channel. I started doing some of these walkthroughs and these crazy walkthroughs and making them entertaining and fun. And it took off. It did really well. And then I started adding some of the teaching components to it about, about the multifamily investors who dominate. That's one milestone. The second one was writing the book for sure. That for me, to be able to give an inside look at the type of conversations between brokers and sellers and how these elite guys have grown their businesses and put it all on paper was awesome. And it sold thousands of copies. And the most rewarding thing has been, it seems like every week, if not almost every day, someone calls me and talks about something that they used or read from the book that has saved a deal, won a deal, kept a deal alive, whatever the case may be. And that's been very cool. Yeah, that's amazing. And when you mentioned Ryan by name, I wasn't familiar. And then you described his YouTube channel. I was like, yeah, I, I, those are amazing. Yeah, you've definitely seen him. If you've been yeah. on YouTube at all, he's been on there. I mean, he was the million dollar listing guy. And you know, his style is different. Some people don't like him. Most people do. But it was the mass that he had created and the power of the marketing capability when you take an asset to market. Yeah, I mean, I never thought I was going to see inside of the swaying for, what's it, the, the CIM building, the really tall residential. Oh, one, yeah. You know, 57th Street over looking uh, Central Park. Yeah. I never I never imagined looking in the inside of that. I was like, wait, maybe one day I'll know someone who will show me. And I was like, wait, no, it's a YouTube <laughs> video. Uh, but yeah, yeah, I mean, definitely like your YouTube videos as well. So that's that's awesome. Time for the lightning round. Start with uh, what superpower would you want if you could choose any? I mean, I mean, everyone wants to read someone's mind, right? I would like to read the minds of folks when they're making decisions in transactions. I would like to be able to just like step in their mind at that time and interrupt them from getting greedy or cocky or doing something stupid that's going to cost them money. <laughs> well, that's a new one. I love it. So what, <laughs> what's your favorite book or what's the one that's helped you the most in your career? Yeah, I would say for me, Deep Work has been a strong book. Deep Work, the concept is every day in the morning, you carve out two or three hours of your day to do only the most important thing in your business. For me, it's having conversations with my existing customers. And I come in this room and the whole world is shut out. I turn off my phone. I don't check social media. I turn my email dings off and I just focus on my customers. And if you can find that one thing that's the most important in your business and do it uninterrupted for two hours, five days a week, you will not be able to handle the amount of business. So what motivates you to continue every day? Hobbies. <laughs> I work to live. I don't live to work. Real estate for me is something I'm good at. And so I do it. It's not something that I'm passionate about. If you said, hey, Bo, tomorrow, if you didn't have to work anymore at all, would you still do it? No, I would go drive Porsches all day long. <laughs> yeah, I was, right? I was hoping for it to get there. I really wanted to bring up the 9-11 talk because yeah, yeah, yeah. we've been bonding over for a while. I enjoy real estate. I enjoy helping people. I enjoy making them wealthy. It's, it's a lot of fun. I enjoy meeting these people and developing relationships with them and doing hobbies together with them. But it's ultimately, I ju it just finances what I like to do with my family and with my hobbies. All right, everyone, you heard it here first. 
when I get my 911 in the near future, I'm going to drive down to Bo. We're going to go. Is there tracks around you? Where are we oh, gonna, yeah. Yeah. We got some tracks, brother. We cool, got some tracks. Cool. Maybe my, <laughs> my GT3 might be a little. Yeah. <laughs> so uh, lastly, what advice would you give to someone who wants to follow in your footsteps? I would say, particularly for young folks, right? Like coming out of college, starting your first careers. What I've noticed over the last 20 years is a tremendous amount of bouncing around to different jobs. Everyone has like eight jobs by the time they're 30 years old and they've worked with each one of them maybe one or two years. You never master anything. I would say pick something you're good at not something you're passionate about. There's a big difference. There's actually a professor that I follow on LinkedIn who talks about this. My passion is cars, but I can't make anywhere near as much money in cars because I don't, I'm not mechanical. I don't, I don't, I don't understand everything about them, right? But that's my passion. What I'm good at is sales. What I'm good at is connecting with people and bringing perspective to people and helping them transact together. I knew I was good at sales. I liked real estate. I got in it. I was good at it and I stuck with it. I didn't jump around to different industries. I didn't jump around to a bunch of different companies. I just stuck in brokerage. I stuck in multifamily and I will keep doing it. And what happens is, is as you get better at something, people notice you're good at something and people from different industries start barking in your ear. Hey, you should come do this. You would be really good at it. You should be on the board of this. You should be the president of that. There's just so much noise out there. And if all you freaking did was that one thing and you master it and you put the 10,000 hours in, I promise you the passion will either follow or you'll be making so much money doing it that like your gold, you can do anything you want after that. But you got to stick to it, man. This whole bouncing around all over the freaking place is like, it's unappealing and you never master anything. Yeah. Wow. It's an interesting perspective that I don't think I've heard yet. For me, I'm like, when I think about jobs, I'm just working to learn. Like I really like multifamily real estate. I want to develop passive income for myself. So I've worked at, you know, on sales and I've worked in acquisitions for a developer. Like this summer, I'm going to a multifamily lender because I just want to know yeah. all the different parts of the business. Sure. I, guess I also want to know what I'm good at, where I, what I like the most and kind of figure out like what part there's a part that's for me but I'm, I want to generate active cash flow. So Now's the time safe. to do that, especially when you're in school and so forth. I'm talking about once you're in your career, when you start bouncing around every two to three years to different industry, different companies, thinking something's greener on the other side, you never really get good or awesome at anything. Yeah, I, that's a good perspective. You never right? become known for something. Lastly, since I put you on the spot, I want to give you a chance for revenge. So ask me anything you'd want to know about me. Ah, that's a very good one. Tell me about your Bob Marley and some of your stuff there on the back wall I've been looking at. What's your, Ooh. is that? All right, this is, how, this is where I'll start. My parents raised me right. <laughs> they raised me to like the, 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 the good music. So I've been, um, my first concert was Red Hat Chili Peppers when I, while I was in the womb. Oh, so, yeah. Yeah, so I've been exposed to, by the time I was uh, graduated high school, I've been to like 70 or more concerts. Just jamming. Really? Yeah, yeah. My parents love something concerts. Wow. Oh, yeah. yeah, I've seen Fish 10 times. So I'm in the double digit club for Fish. My parents are like 30 to 50 or something there. Music's been a big part of my life and my upbringing. So I have a very diverse taste in music. But uh, I mean, obviously, you see the Beatles back there. You see Bob Marley, you see Sublime. Yeah. I recently took History of Jazz. So as you know, I'm in New Orleans and I took history of jazz in, in school. And, you know, I always was like, yeah, yeah, jazz is good. 
you know, maybe I can name Miles Davis. Like I didn't know any, any artists, but now like, I think what I'm really interested in is like, I think jazz is the most incredible place for artistic creativity to just like blossom yeah, and just like I love so that. many good things. So um, I, I'm really glad that you asked that question because <laughs> I'm thinking about start. I'm thinking about uh, releasing my jazz playlist. So anyone who wants to get into jazz, I'll I'll show them some. Of, I'll show them some of the best, some of my favorites, and trying to lead them down the rabbit hole of all these different you know good things. So when I ask someone if they like jazz, I don't want them to say like, "Yeah, jazz is good," or like, or if someone says they like jazz, I'm like. Hey, who's your favorite artist? You're like, oh yeah, you know, I like jazz. And like, I, you know, there's a there's a lot of like really good artists to to dig into. So see John Coltrane over here, or yeah. Matt Coleman over here, Kind of Blue by Miles Davis. So definitely check those out. I'm, That's I'll put in the show notes. Stuff, man, you should definitely put out the list. I'd be interested in that. Awesome. Yeah. You know, this is you heard it here first. This is uh, this is the <laughs> this is the catalyst. We're we're doing it. Awesome. Well, Bo, cool. it was a pleasure as always to chat. And um, I'm glad we got a chance to share all this amazing value with my network and with anyone who's listening to this. But uh, if anyone wants to learn more, I mean, we spoke about a couple, but where can people reach you and uh, where do you like to connect? Yeah, three ways. My website, bobeery.com, I described it. And the reason you want to go there, not, not just for the contact information, but look at the kind of information I put out. That information as you're an investor is the kind of information you want to master for the market you work in. And the second thing is just getting the book. You know, listen, I don't make a bunch of money from the book. I'm not telling you to get the book, you know, so I can make money. I'm, get, I'm telling you to get the book because it is the inside look. It is the Bible for how these elite guys have accumulated so many units over a amount of time. And then the third thing is to subscribe to my YouTube channel. It's called Bo Knows Multifamily. And and uh, I've got playlists on there for beginners. I've got playlists for advanced level investors, analytical playlists, listings, you know, little funny shorts, like all kinds of stuff on there. I put about one or two videos a week out on there. And I think it'll be super educational for you over time. Yeah. I like when you do lip, lip syncing in your, in your porch. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, that's fun. <laughs> yeah. Well, thanks again. This was amazing. And um, everyone keep making milestones. Thanks for joining me on our journey and have a great rest of your day. Thank you.